Thank you. And greetings again this morning in Jesus' name. I was impressed as, of course, we were contemplating this message this morning on another one of the attributes of God by a line in the hymn number 508 that we sang just before breakfast. And that hymn in the chorus makes this expression, He hideth my soul in the depths of His love. In the depths of His love, our souls are hidden. And so this morning, we want to speak, as we consider God and His majesty again, we want to speak on the topic of God is love. God is love. Before we do so, I'd like to again ask us to rise in prayer. We're going to ask... Brother Ryan, to lead us in prayer. <clears throat> pray. Oh, merciful Heavenly Father, come before you once again this morning's hour. We thank you and praise you for all that you've given to us. We praise you for your loftiness and your holiness. Lord, we can't even begin to describe it. Lord, forgive us for our finite minds and for attempting to describe you. Lord, even in your loftiness, I pray that we all would see Jesus. And when we all see Jesus, we will fall down on our faces today. But Lord, we have faith that you're going to say, Be be not afraid. I am thy God. Oh, Oh Lord, please come down with us in a personal relationship with us. Even though you are a high God, Please be personal and a friend that you can walk with us and carry us through our own tri- our tribal trials. Lord, we pray you'd be with Kurt and the rest of those that are going to deliver messages to us today. Help us to have an open heart and willing to have good soil to accept the seed of the gospel so that it might grow into good fruit. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This topic this morning, and you know as well as I do this fact, but this topic this morning is so immense that it's impossible to even scratch the surface of the topic of God is love. The God that we serve has manifested His love to us in so many ways. We see His love as we look across the shimmering waters of the lake. We see His love as we cast our eyes upward. And we see the snow on the mountainside. We see His love in His people in your countenances this morning. We recognize and felt His love as He's worked in our hearts this morning. Each of us. All of these are ways in which God reveals Himself as a God of love. And yet they really really are just so, so limited as we try to really uh, get a grasp on this God that we serve, who is the God of love. Our scripture lessons this morning are two. We'd like to turn to the 10th chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, and read just a few verses there, beginning in verse 12. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now Israel... What doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, 
to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord, and His statutes which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also, with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and He chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty, and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger, in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. Him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. He is thy praise, and he is thy God, that hath done for thee these great and terrible things, which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons, and now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and keep his charge, and his statutes, and his judgments, and his commandments always. First John chapter 4. First John chapter 4 verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so love us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in Him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, So are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him, because he first loved us. And it's hard to know where to quit reading. As we start reading about the love of God, and especially as it's penned by the Apostle John in his epistolary writings. Just... Just a little bit to share as we think about the immensity of the love of God. I appreciated the thought this morning in the morning devotions about the infinitude of God. The infinitude of God. And certainly as we think about His love, 
We recognize that that is a part of His infinitude. We sing sometimes that old familiar hymn, The Love of God, penned by Laman. And it goes like this. It says, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave a son to win. His erring child reconciled and pardoned from his sin. When hoary time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. And then that last stanza, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies with parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above? Would drain the ocean dry? Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forever more endure the saints and angels' song. Could you describe the love of God this morning? Could you plumb the depths of the love of God? Can you get your arms out wide enough to stretch around the love of God? Can you stand on your tiptoes and reach up high enough to reach the love of God? We'll never, we'll never understand the immensity of the love of God. And so we just acknowledge that fact this morning as we focus in on this attribute of God. God is love. Our outline this morning as we think about this message, God is love, is threefold again. I want to speak about how love propitiates. That was the word that's used there in 1 John chapter 4. I want to speak about how love perfects. That word also is used in John chapter 4. And finally, I wish to speak about how love performs. And while that word perform is not found there in John, 1 John 4, yet you'll find that thought woven throughout that passage and also woven throughout the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Love propitiates, love perfects, and love performs. Very simple outline as we try to grasp a little bit of a glimpse of the message, God is love. Verse 10, 1 John chapter 4. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God propitiates. In fact, that verse tells us, verse 10 of 1 John 4, tells us that the love of God propitiates for our sins. It's our sins the love of God propitiates for. God's gift to us propitiates for our sins. Not only does the love of God propitiate for our sins, but if you flip back a couple of pages, a couple of chapters, to the second chapter of 1 John, verse 2, John says, And He, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. We saw that in 1 John 4.10. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John tells us, the love of God propitiates, and it propitiates for our sins, 
propitiating for my sins, propitiating for your sins, and the love of God propitiates for the sins of the whole world. All the world existed today. All the world's ever lived. All the worldlings that will ever live upon the earth. The love of God propitiates. And it's never diminished. Because the love of God propitiates for the sins of the whole world. The love of God propitiates. Well, I'm not real big on definitions. But I'm going to use a couple of definitions. There maybe two or three this morning. And they're going to be limited. I know they are. Because human speech is limited. And we're trying to... To uh, catch a glimpse of the limitless, limitless God, a God who has infinitude, a God who is sovereign and majestic and infinite beyond our comprehension. But I'd like to just give you a very uh, brief definition of propitiation. You could think of it this way. You could think of propitiation being as turning away wrath. It's the turning away of God's wrath. When the Bible says that the love of God propitiates, it means that because of God's love, because of God's love, He has made a means, provided a means, by which His wrath can be turned away. And I have always appreciated the illustration given by Harold S. Martin, and I read this 30 years ago or more. But he likens the love of God to a lightning rod. And what does a lightning rod do? When the lightning strikes, and it strikes and hits that rod, it takes the charge right out of the lightning, and diverts it from the building on which it's placed, and drives it into the ground. The wrath of God is turned away. The lightning, the lightning is turned away by the lightning rod. And God's wrath is turned away because He has provided a propitiation for us, Because He is a God of love. I wanted to go to the third chapter of Romans and just read a few verses there as we think about the love of God and the propitiation that He has provided. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 23, reads like this. Speaks about us. It says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus." The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that Jesus Christ has been set forth to be the propitiation for our sins. It was Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of God. It was Jesus Christ whom the lightning flashed upon and and struck Him. And we're using that expression figuratively, of course. But it was Jesus Christ who has turned away the wrath of God for all of those who are willing to find shelter in this great rock, the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. There are many, many great truths provided in those four verses in Romans chapter 3. We'll not go to all of them, but just to pull out a few of them. And their relationship to this theme of love propitiates. One of those, of course, 
is that the propitiating love of God redeems fallen humanity. It was for our redemption. It was for God's desire to buy us back that His love was manifest in His propitiation. Redemption certainly is at the heart of propitiation. Another thing that we see here in this passage in Romans chapter 3 is the love of God, the propitiating love of God, remits our sins. It remits our sins. God has provided a remedy. And the love of God remits our sins as Paul expresses it in Romans chapter 3. In other words, the love of God forgives our sins. He forgives our sins. And you might notice in that verse, verse 25, it speaks about the forgiveness, the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Let's be sure we understand that the love of God that propitiates, God's propitiating love has forgiven if we've confessed, if we've pleaded the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us. The love of God, the propitiating love of God has cleansed us from our past sins. He has cleansed us from those things. We can be confident. We can stand assured this morning. The love of God has propitiated for our past sins. We're living in the present. We're not yet in the future. Let's be cautious that we do not assume the love of God has propitiated for our future sins. Our future sins, we must meet them one by one. We must confess them in, in due time. And we must plead again that God would cleanse us continually, cleansing us by the blood of Christ, which has no limit. The love of God propitiates and He forgives and remits the sins that are past. You know, this propitiating love of God, as we think about the turning away of wrath, as we think about the lightning rod symbology, this propitiating love of God just simply mystifies logical minds. It just mystifies minds that are focused on logic. But it does something else. It humbles mystical minds. It humbles men who are mystic, mystics, as they contemplate on the love of God, the love of God. Romans chapter 3 tells us the love of God is freely encouched. Freely encouched in the grace that God gives. This love of God is freely encouched in the grace that God gives to His children. Encouched in the grace freely given. And so, what is grace? What is grace? We sung about it this morning. We like, to, we like to talk about it. We focused on that yesterday morning during devotions. What is grace? Well, it's simply the love of God at work in time, in our lives, in our world. It's God's love working with us. That's not a theological definition. That's just a practical working explanation of the love of God. I want us to understand this morning... As we think about this propitiating love of God, that God's wrath on sin is a reality. It is a reality. You'll recall that a long time ago, 6,000 years ago, God created. And the Bible says that as He neared the end of His creation, His creative work there on the first day, on the first week, God created two people, Adam and Eve. 
And they, of course, are the four parents of all humanity. Adam and Eve. God placed them in a perfect environment. And God gave them a choice. And surely we all recognize that Adam and Eve failed in the choice they made. They failed, and the Bible says they sinned. They partook of the fruit of that forbidden tree. And they sinned. And because they did that, the Bible says that God pronounced a curse. God pronounced a curse. And that curse was directed, first of all, to the serpent. Remember how God spoke to the serpent? And he said, Upon thy belly shalt thou go. Thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. But God's curse wasn't limited to only the serpent. God's curse was also pronounced upon the earth, upon his creation. God spoke to Adam, and he said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. And he told him in essence, he said, In in sorrow, your life is going to be filled with toil. You're going to have sweat from your face as you seek to accumulate bread to yourself. He spoke to Eve, and he said, In sorrow, you're going to conceive children. That's the curse that God placed on the ground. Was God finished with His curse? Was God finished with His curse when He cursed the serpent? When He cursed the ground? What about man? Did God curse man? Just ponder that. Did God curse man? It's been said that God cursed man. Now we understand that because we are tied to the earth... We are living under the curse. But did God curse the human family? We know that God, shortly, before long, He pronounced a curse upon Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. We know that God cursed the Canaanite people. We know that God cursed the Israelite nation because of their disobedience. We know that God has cursed certain people. But as I thought about that question this morning, I'm just not sure that we could say that God has cursed man. And I'm speaking about all of humanity. Now, maybe you can find a scripture that speaks about the fact that God has cursed all of humanity. But somehow the love of God reaches through all of that. The love of God that propitiates for us. God's love reaching down and drawing us, wooing us into His presence. The curse that God placed as as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience. God's wrath on sin is a reality. Because God is a God of justice, God will act in ways that are just. And because He hates sin with perfect hatred, then He must act, He will act, on that sin. Remember that He is holy and He is true. He is also love. These are attributes of God. And God's justice will act on sin. And so, He provided the remedy. He provided Jesus Christ as the propitiation, the lightning rod for, to which His wrath was poured out. Jesus Christ. The propitiation for our sins. The turning away of God's wrath. Those three passages that we went to. 
1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 2, and Romans chapter 3 are the only passages in the New Testament that you, in which you'll find the word propitiation. But I want to say that if you'll go back to the Greek word from which those English words come from, you will find there's a fourth passage in Scripture in the New Testament that speaks about the propitiation of God. And while it doesn't use that word, that's exactly what it means. I'm thinking about the passage in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. When the writer speaks about how Moses was shown the pattern of the heavenly things, and how Moses instructed Aaron, and Aaron began to make the things that God had, had revealed to Moses, as he, as he was with him, communing with him in the mountain, God showing him the pattern. And one of the things that God requested that would be made was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant, the Bible says there was to be the mercy seat. If you would turn to, to if you would turn sometime to Hebrews chapter nine verse twenty five and just look at the expression there, that word mercy seat in Hebrews chapter nine verse five. It's verse five, not twenty five. In verse five, is that word mercy seat is the same word that is translated in Romans three, first John two, and first John four as propitiation. The mercy seat. You see, this propitiating love of God was present with His people all through the wilderness wanderings. It was present with the people of God all during the time that they were involved in the Canaanite conquest and dwelling there in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. This love of God that propitiates was revealed to His people even though they were driven into captivity and led into captivity. Yet the propitiating love of God was present with them. The propitiating love of God was available for them to see and to just catch a glimpse of as, the, as their eyes would turn upward, as they would think about the love of God that propitiates. It was mercy and love. And I think you'll find that, that expression given multiple, multiple times. But it's mercy and love that God was using and exhibiting as He gave the patterns to Moses there in the mount. I want to turn... To 1 Peter chapter 1. And just read a few verses there. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. <clears throat> the Bible says in 1 Peter 1 verse 18. Ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by Him do believe in God, that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. <clears throat> the Savior of mankind... The Savior of mankind, given to earth. His blood is precious. He redeems us by His precious blood. He was a lamb, Peter says, without blemish and without spot. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 1 verse 20, that all of this was in the plan of God from when? 
From the time that Adam and Eve sinned? Verily not. This is in the plan of God, the Bible says. Before the foundation of the world. Before God began to act in creation. Before that time. This love of God, this propitiating love of God that gave His only Son to die at Calvary for our sins. This was all a part of the plan of God. Love propitiates. He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This propitiating love of God is a love that the Bible says is a so love. A so love. S-O, so, love. You remember John chapter 3 verse 16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Can't we be thankful this morning that the love of God is a love that is a soul love. The propitiating love of God. Let's think about the perfecting aspect of the love of God. The love of God also perfects. Love perfects. It's God's desire that His love would would be a reality. Not just some theological topic that we address, but the love of God will be a reality. It will be felt. It will be cherished in the hearts of His children. And God seeks that His love might really act in our lives. He wants that love to have its work in us. And the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, as it speaks about the work of the love of God in us, that the love of God perfects. The love of God perfects. It's a perfect love. It's a perfecting love. It's a perfected love. Notice verse 12, John, 1 John chapter 4. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Four times in this chapter alone, John emphasizes the perfecting love of God. Love perfected. The perfecting love of God. Perfect love. What does perfect love tell us? What is God trying to say to us when He speaks to us about perfect love? Perfect love. The Greek word is teleos. Perfect teleos. And this Greek word is translated in various ways in the English New Testament. One of the ways it's translated is fulfill. The days were fulfilled in the early time of the gospel. The days were perfected. The days were fulfilled. It means to do. Jesus said, I have a work to do. And he meant that he had a work to perfect. Jesus said, I've come to finish. That's teleos again. Finish the work that my Father hath given me. The Bible says, concerning those who are of full age... And the diet they partake of, it's not milk, but it's meat. Those who are full age 
are individuals who are of a teleos age. That's a perfect age. Perfected age. Let's think about the fact that the perfect love of God is just speaking to us about a love that is maturing. It's a love that is growing. It's a love that God is blessing as we seek to draw closer and closer to Him. It doesn't mean absolute moral perfection as we, as we thought about that expression Monday morning speaking about God is holy. The perfect love of God in us does not speak about... It's a, it's a word teleos. It does not speak about absolute moral perfection of love. There are three other New Testament passages that speak about love and perfect in the same connection. One of those is back in that second chapter of 1 John, when in verse 5, John says, Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know that we are in him. Another one is in the Gospel of John, that prayer that Jesus uttered on the way to Gethsemane. John chapter 17, where the Bible says in verse 23, And then I and them and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Perfect love manifest again to us in that 17th chapter of John verse 23. And the third one is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, which reads like this. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Love and perfect used in the same verse in those three particular references. I'd like for you to notice the, the emphasis that God places in those particular passages we just went to. 1 John 2 verse 5 says again, Whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. It's those who keep the word of God in whom the love of God is perfected. Those who keep the word of God. Those who cherish the Word of God. Those who feed upon the Word of God. Those who meditate upon it. Those who make it a part of their lives. Those who delight to go to the Word of God every day and spend time with God in His Word as He speaks to us. The Bible says it's that kind of an individual in whom the love of God is perfected. Those who cherish the Word of God. If you want the love of God perfected in you, then dear ones, this morning, let's be cognizant of the fact that we must cherish the Word of God. It's the love of God that allows Him, the Word of God that allows Him to speak to us and, and cause our love to be made perfect, to be full, to be complete, to be mature. This perfect love of God, the emphasis is on keeping the Word. Don't just read it. But live it. Live the Word of God. Keep the Word of God, as John says in 1 John 2, verse 5. I want to go to the third reference that we gave as we thought about three other New Testament passages in which love and perfect are used in the same context. That being in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. The interesting thing about 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11 
as we think about the love of God and, and being perfected in us, is the fact that Paul is using a different word than what the Apostle John uses. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, tells us that Paul's desire for us is that we be made perfect. And he's telling us that the God of love and peace shall be with us. I've changed the pronouns and I've identified myself as being in that passage along with you. But Paul uses a different word as he speaks about the love of God being perfected in us. The perfected love of God. The Greek word is katartizo that Paul is using and it means something different than what John refers to as he speaks about the love of God being fulfilled or being completed, being maturing in our lives. When Paul uses that word, that Greek word katartizo, he is speaking about God's repairing and restoring work in our hearts. It's the same Greek word that Jesus that we find when Jesus came to the seashore and He found those disciples and He began to call them. Remember two of them, the Bible says, were on the shore mending their nets. They were repairing their nets. They were catertidzoing their nets, if you could use that expression. We just kind of um, blurred the line between the Greek language and the English language. But I think you understand what we mean. When you mend your nets, you're catertidzoing your nets. And that's what those disciples were doing. When God desires to work with us, and the Apostle Paul, again, makes reference to this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, when he says, If any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. When Paul says to restore, he's using that same word, katartizo. He's meaning that God's redemptive act, God's restorative work, is to be, is to be uh, real and alive in the hearts and lives of His disciples. We ought to be individuals who are repairing, who are restoring, who desire to be a blessing in the lives of others. And so when Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, when he makes reference to, to being made perfect, when he makes reference to God's love in all of that, he's telling us that God is at work repairing and restoring. And as He repairs and restores, His love is perfected in us. The love of God that perfects. Verse 12 of 1 John chapter 4 says, If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now notice that integral there is that God dwell in us. God must dwell in us if His love is going to be perfected in us. God must be at home there. He must be in residence there. We must cherish the fact that God is dwelling in us. It just marvels me as I try to think about God and His infinitude, as I think about God and His sovereignty, how God would choose to dwell within clay pots, earthly temples 
like you and me. That's, that's a marvel to me, that God would choose to do that. I don't doubt that it's true. I believe it with all my heart that it's true. But I just marvel that He would choose to dwell in vessels like you and me. Yet the Bible says that's exactly what happens. His Spirit, that we refer to as the Holy Spirit, comes down and comes within us, takes up residence there, and He prompts us, the Holy Spirit of God, to walk in the ways of light, to embrace the ways of holiness, embrace the ways of truth, to embrace this perfected love of God that we're speaking about this morning. Only God within can cause us to have perfect love. Only God dwelling within can have to, can result in love being perfected. I like also an emphasis that we find in verse 17 of 1 John chapter 4. And the Bible says there that, and I'm going to paraphrase here a bit, but because our love is perfected, then we have boldness. We have boldness. And the apostle goes on in the day of judgment. But dear ones, this morning, I really believe that because of the perfecting love of God at work in our hearts and in our lives, we can have boldness. We can have boldness. There are many individuals who have a natural propensity of timidity. I was one of them. I was a very timid individual. I was bashful and shy. In fact, I was so shy that I was afraid to walk in church. I was just afraid to walk in church because I just knew that people were going to be looking at me. That is a reality. You think about the gifts of God and how God gifts certain individuals. And I believe that the gifts of God are something different than natural talents. I can stand here this morning and I'm not timid. I'm bold for Christ. And you can be too. It's because God has gifted me. I wasn't naturally that way, but He gifted me. I'll tell you another illustration. When I was 20 years old, I was asked by an uncle of mine to drive him to a love feast in Ohio. He was a minister, and I was working for him. He asked me to go and drive him to the love feast. And I said I would go. I went to Ohio to a a love feast in the Stillwater District. When I got there, because of my timidity... I refused to get out of the van. I sat there in that van during the Saturday morning service. I sat there in the van during the Saturday afternoon service. I sat there in the van Saturday evening during the communion service. I sat in the van for morning worship. And you know I didn't feel good about that. I didn't feel a bit good about that. But I sat there during the farewell address because I was too afraid... I was too timid. I was beshackled by fears of timidity. You can be that way. But God will give you freedom from that. He will cause you, because of His love being perfected in your lives, He will cause you to have boldness for Him. You can stand boldly for Him. And you can proclaim to Him, When a man's a filling station turns behind him and looks at you and says, Isn't that right? You can speak because you have the boldness of the perfected love of God in your hearts. Dear ones, it's possible. There's victory that's been promised to us 
in this particular area, we can be sure the perfecting love of God will give us boldness to stand for Him. The perfected love of God does something else. In this chapter, 1 John chapter 4, the Bible says that it liberates us, and this is very closely akin to being bold for Him. But verse 18 says, There is no fear in love. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. You see, the love of God liberates us. This perfected love of God, as He works in our lives, He will liberate us. We can be confident of that fact this morning. Well, I want to move to the last particular point that we have in mind as we think about God is love, and that is that love performs. It's a wonderful thing to think about love propitiating. It's a wonderful thing to recognize that love perfects. But dear ones, let's never forget that the love of God also requires something from us. The love that performs. Really, this is enacted in our lives in two different ways. And they're both described for us in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Deuteronomy chapter 10. And let's just quickly flip back there and think about how God speaks to us in this passage about His love and the performing of that love within us. Deuteronomy chapter 10. One of the ways in which the love of God is enacted in our lives is this, this love that performs is the love of God will perform toward God. Notice what it says in verse 12. If you're like I am and like many individuals, no doubt you have at times and perhaps oftentimes, perhaps daily, you have what is referred to sometimes as a to-do list. A to-do list. Well, God has a to-do list for us. And it's a list that's found for us in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And there's five things on it. And right at the center of that to-do list is to love Him. To love Him. Pick Him out. Beginning in verse 12. Here's the list. To fear. To walk. To love. To serve. And to keep. That's God's to-do list for us. To keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Verse 1 of chapter 11 of Deuteronomy says, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God. You see where our love is directed? It's toward God. Love the Lord thy God. And keep, number one, His charge. Number two, His statutes. Number three, His judgments. And number four, His commandments. And when do we do this? The Bible says we do it always. Always. We are children of His who are allowing the love of God to perform in our life. It makes a difference, the love of God does. The love of God performing in our lives. God wants us always to keep His way, His will, His judgments, His statutes, 
His commandments. Always. All the time. But, and I flipped away from that, but I want to flip back again to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and just remind us that that is only one way in which the love of God is to be a reality, this perfect, this performing love of God in our lives. Because the Bible says, not only is our love directed to Him, but this performing love of God will be directed toward others. Verse 19 Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, Love ye therefore the stranger. Love the stranger. And Moses is writing these words because God spoke them to him. And God said to Moses, He said, Remember how I loved you. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. And I loved you. And I called you out. Called you to the promised land. The land of promise. The Bible says in verse 18 of Deuteronomy chapter 10, He loveth the stranger. He loveth the stranger. And I will just confess this morning that I really believe I fail God so many times because I fail to love the stranger like He would like for me to do. You don't know how many individuals there are in the workplace that you have opportunity to impact with the love of God performing in your life. Strangers. But you have a wonderful opportunity to just touch their hearts and touch their lives and, and help them to catch a glimpse of this 